Let's boogie. Okay, friends, the story begins. We are on page 61, continuing our journey through the sitter. We've we got to take a moment and just stop for a second. Look where we look where we're up to. We've got past the main meat and potatoes of the sitter. We've got through the Shema, we've got through the Amida, which everything in the sitter is basically climaxing and leading up to those two points. We've got to the through the Tachnun, the forgiveness prayer, which represents the ultimate vulnerability with God after reciting the Shema and the Amida. And now it's time to take out the Torah. Now, the Torah reading on Shabbos is different than the Torah reading during the week. We read the same portion as we would on Shabbos, but it's much shorter than it is during the week. So let's take a step back. The Talmud says that Moses established Torah reading. Now, obviously, Moses didn't invent the Torah. Moses um, inscribed or scribed what God told him to write. But the notion of reading it publicly um, at set times, th that was established by Moses. And then later was actually divided into specific portions. And Moses established that it should be read four times throughout the week. The Torah is read four times throughout the week. It's read on Shabbos. And we read an entire portion on Shabbos. Again, the portions came later. It's read Mincha on Shabbos in the afternoon. Right, get ready and we read the next portion. Get ready for the next week. And then it's read on Mondays and it's read on Thursdays. And here is the reason. What's the significance of Mondays and Thursdays? We discussed this a couple of weeks ago in discussing the longer Tachman supplications for Mondays and Thursdays. Right, what's unique about Mondays and Thursdays? Well, well was the, the gatherings at the marketplace? Okay, not that's actually a good guess because there are times where that is relevant in, in certain readings, you know, especially when it comes to the Megillah, um, you know, Megillah readings and stuff like that, but but not exactly. What's unique about Mondays and Thursdays, they're days of mercy, they're days of they're auspicious days, they're auspicious times. And the reason why is because when the Jews sinned with the golden calf, Moses comes down, he's ready to present with us to us the tablets, he sees us cheating on God. Where it literally says in those tablets, don't do that. Moses smashes the tablets, right? We've sinned. We had a grave sin. God wants to punish the Jewish people. He wants to eradicate us. He wants to start over with Moses. And Moses says, God, you could do that, but I'm not interested. Take me out of this. I'll find a different uh, a different profession. I'm not interested. You're not going to mess with my people. You're going to hold on to them. Moses goes up to heaven and he pleads to God for 40 days. 40 days later, he comes down and presents the second tablets. That's Yom Kippur. Moses went up on a Thursday. He came down on a Monday. So the Monday, Thursday, Thursday, Monday, that represents those uh, that auspicious time of forgiveness. Because it's an auspicious time. Say that six times fast. Auspicious time. <laughs> because it's an auspicious... Help me out here, guys. <laughs> auspicious. There we go. Because it's an auspicious time. That's one of the reasons why Mondays and Thursdays were established for Torah reading. But there's another reason that the Talmud says. Well, didn't, didn't we also say something that matches the original dates? Well, not original, but something having to do with Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the days? Well, Yom Kippur was a Monday. And that's when Moses came down the mountain on a Monday. Oh, okay. 
and he went up 40 days prior to that to get beg forgiveness and that was thursday hmm. but there's a more there's another reason why moses established reading the torah um shabbos sunday monday by the way it was also later that ezra established the aliyahs the seven aliyahs three aliyahs during the week um, so, and, and Ezra, you know, had, had, was also quite instrumental in this, you know, about a thousand years later. But here's the here's what the Talmud says. You, Torah is compared to water. Torah is our lifeline. You can't go three days without water. Otherwise you die. A Jew who goes more than three days without being exposed to the Torah, they're... They're dehydrate. They're spiritually dehydrating themselves. You can't. Moses realized that that we need the Torah. We need to read it every three days. During you know we read on Yom Kippur about the ten martyrs, the ten sages that sacrificed their lives for Judaism. One of which was the famed Rabbi Akiva. The Romans were after Rabbi Akiva, and they defamed him and tortured him. Um, horribly, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with with these types of things. You know, we thought this was something we read in the Talmud and you know something of the past. But Rabbi Akiva said, "I'm not going to do anything that's going to rip me away from my Jewish identity. I'm going not to budge in my relationship with God." He didn't care. I'm a Jew and I'm proud. It got to the point that Rabbi Akiva was a bit fanatic. He said, "I was waiting for this." For that moment where I could say, Shema Israel, hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, because it's real to me, not because it's routine. And um, they were after him. And he said, I don't care. And he started teaching Torah publicly. Somebody said, Rebbe, you're going to get us in trouble. Why don't you save yourself and just keep your mouth shut and we'll all be happy? He says, not worth it. What do you mean not worth it? He says, I'll give you an analogy. And this is the analogy Rabbi Akiva says. It. It's cited in the Talmud. You have a fish. And there's sharks chasing the fish. The fish is trying to swim away. There's a fox that comes to the seashore. Or whatever, the, the edge of the river. Or whatever it is. And says, little fish, I have an idea. Why don't you jump out? Come on my back and I'll save you. I'll take you to safety. Is the fish going to do it? No. If I jump out of the water, I'm for sure going to die. If I stay in the water, I have a life and I have a chance. Rabbi Kiva says, if I stop teaching Torah, what is my existence worth as a Jew? Our whole value as a Jew comes from and emanates from the Torah. And if I'm going to stop that, I'm dehydrating myself. It's not worth it. Over here, at least I have a chance. And it's for this reason we pull out that we, we it's structured in the prayer service that there isn't going to be more than three days without pulling out that Torah. The Maharal of Prague, Rabbi Yudalau of Prague, he was a Kabbalist in the Czech Republic of Prague in the 15th century. Kabbalist and philosopher. And he points out 
that the the having the idea of reading the Torah on a regular basis shows the consistency of Judaism. The only consistent part of Judaism is the Torah. Bagels and locks are pretty Jewish, but it wasn't always, and it probably won't always be. The matzah balls are pretty Jewish. If you're Ashkenaz, if you're Sephardic, it's not. Right? All these things are cultural. Even the language of Judaism. What's more Jewish than Yiddish? Yiddish literally means Jewish. It's a Jewish language, right? Didn't always exist. It happens to be a dying language right now. And even when it was prevalent in the shtetl, it wasn't uh it was non-existent in the Sephardic communities where they spoke Ladino. In the age of the Talmud, the version of Yiddish was Aramaic. There was a Jewish version of Aramaic. But my point is, even linguistically, that's not consistent within Judaism. That's not what keeps Judaism together. The only consistent thing about Judaism is the Torah. Now, how we interpret the Torah, how we apply the Torah, how we connect to the Torah might vary from person to person, from generation to, the gen from, to generation. But the Torah itself doesn't change. That's true and beautiful Judaism. Something consistent, something objective. It has inherent value. The morale points out something fascinating, by the way. This is parenthetically speaking. A little bit off topic, but I think this is an important point to mention. When the Jewish people were receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai, they said, okay, God, we're accepting this upon ourselves. We're going to do it. We're going to even understand it and try our best to comprehend it and to make sense and meaning of it. Few lines later in the Torah, it says that the Jewish people stood under the mountain. Do you ever notice that the Jewish people stood under the mountain? How do you stand under a mountain? Okay, so the many of the translations interpret it as at the foot of the mountain, you know, the bottom of the mountain, not under the mountain. It's it's translation. You got to work with it a little bit. The Talmud says no. They literally stood under the mountain. God uprooted that mountain, held it over their heads, and said, are you guys going to accept this Torah? And they said, uh, yeah, we are. <laughs> they don't leave us much choice. It was imposed on them. And there's two questions here. Number one, why impose it on them? They already accepted it. They already wanted it. They already showed interest. Number two, what value does it have if they don't want it on their own and you have to impose it on them? Sounds a little dogmatic, sounds a little cultish. So the Maharal explains, if you accept the Torah just because you want it, just because you think it's interesting, or just because you think it makes sense, well, what happens if your perspective shifts? Is the Torah no longer valid? What if you're no longer interested is it no longer valid? The Maharal explains that God held the Torah over our heads and imposed it on us to teach us that it has intrinsic value. It has inherent value. It's sacred, whether we understand it or connect to it or not. We're going to do our best to connect to it. But even if at times we feel, I don't know, I don't really get this. Well, we have faith that there's actual inherent value to it. There's stability to it. There's consistency to it. Pulling out that Torah 
and realizing that it's our lifeline to existence as a Jew is a reminder of what um, real Jewish stability is. And by the way, it, it, the proof is in the, in the pudding. You just look in history. Any Jewish community that embraced Torah as, a, as an identity, as a being that does not change. It's one of Maimonides' 13 principles of the Jewish faith, that the Torah does not change. The Torah is from God, and you can't change God. Or God created us. We didn't create God. Any community throughout history that embraced that still exists. Any community in Judaism that veered away from that Saying that ah we could tweak this and we could change this and they've assimilated, they've no longer existed. I'll start with the Sadducees, that Sadukim, who didn't believe in the old world. They don't exist. Look at Christianity and Jesus. Jesus tried changing the Torah. It ended up becoming an entire separate religion. The only consistency to Judaism and the only way to perpetuate Judaism is the, through the Torah. Must have been something I said. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so I'll tell you a great story. This is, to me, was a personal anecdote and, and, and such a beautiful, beautiful situation. So you guys have been hanging around Chabad long enough to know that we're scammers because we put on these advertisements like Magilla and martinis and we you know you get you come for the martinis and we get you force you to do a mitzvah right <laughs> we put up the menu of what our sukkot dinner is going to look like and we get you to sit in a sukkah we worked we, we figured it out <laughs> um I'm, I'm being a little facetious here but um we had a, a purim event a beautiful purim event this last purim and we had Magilla and martinis or or Magilla and Something else that started with an M. I'm sorry, I'm not into this alcohol stuff. I could, I smell that stuff. And right, John, you know, you have to walk me home after I smell that stuff. Um, we had, what was it? Do you remember? Magilla and what's the other one? Margaritas. Uh, I, I was in Tracy, so I don't know. Oh, you were in Tracy. Magilla and Margaritas. We had something like that. Okay. So we had a beautiful, beautiful Purim event. We had an open margarita bar. And it attracted a large crowd. And people got the best of both worlds, both material and spiritual. They got to engage in the holiday form and had fun doing it too. It was beautiful. There's a fellow in the community that joined. And this is a fellow whom I don't see often. He he rarely does come to events. And I, I would say has not fully embraced, has not fully embraced his Jewish identity yet. Um, to the point that he's even married to uh, what some might call a Christian Bible thumper. And that ideology seems to appeal to him. So the fact that he came to a Purim event was a big deal. He says, look, you got me, margaritas, I'm in. He was so excited about the margaritas that he even, he was walking with a cane and he's a young guy. I was so surprised. I said, why do you have a cane? He says, there was certain medication that I wasn't taking and my leg was hurting and I didn't take medication because of margaritas. <laughs> he was really looking forward to this event. 
Um, at, at the end of the event, you know, we, we listened to the Megillah, we did the prayers, we had the event, we, I think we had an illusionist or something. Afterwards, I'm chatting with him and he says, you know what my favorite part of the event was? I said, what? I was surprised. He says, the Megillah service, the Megillah reading. That, that for some, that's quite boring. You just sit there for a half hour, especially if you're not initiated, you know, yet, and you don't really know what it is and you don't know the story and you're just hearing Hebrew rambling. It's it, it. I was surprised to hear from him that that was a highlight of his event. I said, why? He says, the reader was reading and occasionally, you know, he would make a mistake here and there and people would correct him from the, from the crowd. I thought that was so beautiful. It's not a performance. It's not a show. You know, in music, you make a mistake, move on, hope nobody notices. But this isn't a performance. This is you guys reading God's word. And you got to get it right. And even if it doesn't look good publicly, it doesn't matter to anybody. Nobody cares. We want the truth. This was his observation. I said, wow. Such, such an inspiring observation on multiple levels. But that's what he took out from that evening. He wanted the truth. And he was inspired, not by the margaritas. He came with the margaritas, but was inspired by the truth. By the stability and consistency and tradition of the Torah. When we take out the Torah, we read this first paragraph on page 61. Do you see it? Vayihi bin Soah Ha'aron. Right? There's the tune. Vayihi bin Soah Ha'aron. Vayomer Moshe. Whenever the ark set out, Moses would say, Arise, O Lord, and your enemies will be dispersed, and your foes will flee before you. For from Zion shall go forth the Torah. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, blessed is he who in his holiness gave the Torah to his people. This is from a, the first line is a quote from the book of Numbers. The Jewish people are traveling in the desert. They're wandering in the desert for 40 years. And they're carrying the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant that has within it the tablets and the Torah. And what the Torah says is that when Aaron, when Aaron is sitting, sorry, not Aaron, sorry. When, when, when they are carrying the Ark, when the Levites are carrying the Ark, Moses would say, arise, O Lord. Now, Rashi over there, in the Torah, points out, why is Moses saying that? Arise, O Lord. So Rashi points out that the word, translations are a little bit, uh, again, you have to be careful with translations. Arise, O Lord. In the Hebrew, it's kuma. Kuma Hashem, the first line. Kuma Hashem. The word kuma literally does mean arise, but Rashi points out that in this context, it actually means wait. God, stop, Wait. We're traveling with the ark. The Shekhinah, the divine presence is there. There's a long line of Jewish people, and some of them were three days distance away. Wait. And we're saying that to ourselves as well. When we take out the Torah, wait. You're not that far from the Torah. You're going to come close to the Torah. You're going to come close to this truth. You're going to come close and embrace these values. Just wait. That's what we're saying. Right. We have to, perhaps when the Torah is coming out, put in a little bit effort, put in a little bit more effort to come close to the Torah. 
And then we say, from Zion shall go forth the Torah. And the word of Lord from Jerusalem, why are we saying that when we take out the Torah? You know, it's it, it, this is important because there's so much routine in Judaism. Take out the Torah, it's time to say this. Well, why are we saying this? What is the significance? So in message number one, we got to wait. we got to come close to the Torah. Message number two, commentaries point out, where is where does the ultimate authority in Torah law come from? Well, Moses, right? You remember Moses' father-in-law? He said, Moses, you can't handle all this. You got to split up the uh, judicial system and create various levels. Lower level questions could be answered by lower level judges, higher level questions, higher level judges, and ultimately it could all come back to you. But you gotta you gotta be more organized, Moses. You gotta learn how to manage a company and a business. You gotta you gotta do this right. This ultimately translated into the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the higher rabbinical court in Jerusalem, 71 judges. Again, there were courts throughout Israel that had 23 judges, some had five judges, some had only three judges, some had only one judge. There were various levels of courts. But the ultimate court was the Sanhedrin. And they had a little courthouse, like a little Beit Din courtroom in the Beit HaMikdash. And any question that was disputed or unanswered in Judaism was resolved by voting in the Sanhedrin, by the votes of these judges, which ultimately with the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash fizzled out. And that's where we ultimately took several generations, but lost traditional rabbinical ordination that was handed down from Moses. That's why the Talmud was created. There's no more centralized Judaism. Let's at least have a centralized book of Judaism. We pray for the day that we'll have the Sanhedrin, the rabbinical court, and uh, reestablished, and we'll have ultimate clarity. Right now, we don't have clarity. There's different traditions. There's different minhagim. Customs, there's debate, a lot of debate because there's a lot of unresolved issues and questions and challenges. And what we're saying is, just like we're opening the ark now and the Torah is coming out, we know that one day that Torah, the law of Torah, the interpretation of Torah will also emerge from the Sanhedrin, from the high rabbinical court. We know it's going to come back. We know Mashiach is going to come. And we know we're going to be able to listen to and hear and interpret the truth. We know that the lack of clarity that we have now, due to the lack of spiritual competence and even intellectual competence, is temporary. We know that. Just like the ark is opening now and it's an opportune time to pray, we know that one day the Israel is going to open up and we're going to have ultimate unity and ultimate halachic Jewish authority. There's another explanation as to why we say this when we take the Torah out. Again, when was this line recited historically? When they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant in the desert. What were they doing in the desert? They were getting to Israel. We received the Torah, our pit stop in Sinai. We escaped Egypt, had a pit stop in Sinai to receive the Torah. Okay, now let's go to Israel. That's the ultimate purpose. 
The whole thing started, the whole Judaism started with a promise to Abraham, I'm going to take your people to this land. But there was a detour or a delay by 40 years. We wandered the desert for 40 years. Thanks to the sin of the golden calf. All right, I, the spies. I thought, I thought that was because of the spies. Sorry, 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 sorry. The as it's funny as I was, I was thinking spies, and I said, okay. um, "Thank you," because of the sin of the spies. Right, the spies messed up for forty days. It was a forty-day trip, and it was a. Um, and by the way, they reported on Tisha B'av, the ninth of Av. That's when they came back. Um. That's one of the atrocities that took place on Tisha B'Av on the 9th of Av. And um, we have to make that up by wandering the desert for 40 years. So what was this 40-year detour in the desert? A punishment. Right? The exile, it was essentially like the first exile that we had, a really second exile. <laughs> we had the exile in Egypt. But it was an element of exile. For 40 years as a punishment. But the Zohar, one of the earliest works on Kabbalah, explains something fascinating. Wandering the desert for 40 years wasn't just a punishment. There was a purpose to it. There was a mission that came along with it. Um, in general, there, there's you know, there's the body and the soul of Torah. The body of Torah, the, the more literal element of Torah tells you the what. The deeper soul of Torah tells you the why. The what, we're wandering the desert. Looks like a punishment. The why, because you have a mission. You have a purpose. Obviously, we weren't ready to go into Israel, and there's something we needed to do in that desert. Obviously, the desert had to have been elevated and could only happen if we're there. That's how the inner soul of Torah looks at life. Why are you where you are? Because that's where God wants you to be. Or even put differently, that's where God needs you to be. God needed us in that desert. Because there were elements of that desert that had to have been elevated. And there was klipa on that desert that had to have been elevated. And when we're marching with the tabernacle, in the desert and setting up camp and creating a home for God and carrying the Ark of the Covenant and doing our service to God in that desert, we elevate it. And similarly in our own lives, when we find our life to be desolate like a desert, we got to march with that Ark of the Covenant. We got to create a tabernacle, a home for God. We got to elevate our desert. We got to elevate Klippa. Klippa is that negative, spiritual negative force. That makes things make things feel empty of spiritual substance. That make us focus more on what, uh, on the pleasure of the world rather than the purpose of the world. On the how good this feels rather than why I was created, the purpose for which I was created, and our job is to elevate this klipa. There's two types of klipa. There's certain types of klipa that you have to elevate, and there's certain types of klipa that you have to reject. For example, you can reject, um, for example, non-kosher food. 
can't elevate non-kosher food. I'm going to use that energy to study Torah and it's going to make me a better... <laughs> it doesn't work. We're not that strong. That's why it says in Tanya that the Hebrew word for prohibited, asur, also means tied down. It's not something we can elevate. We have to reject it. Then there's certain things that we can elevate, like kosher food. Is kosher food holy? Well, if you use it for holy purposes, like a Shabbat dinner, or, or to you know you, you use that energy to do something good, it becomes holy. Mutar, it's permitted. It's released. We have the potential to release it. So take a look at the text over here. I'm going to read from the Hebrew, and I'm going to translate from the Hebrew, because it, it, for our purposes, it's going to be it's going to do what we need. Page sixty-one. It was when they were lifting up the ark. Moshe Moses said, Kuma Hashem, arise God, or wait God. Your enemies shall be dispersed. This type of klipa, this type of negative energy and desolence that works against us. We got to reject it totally. We got to disperse it. We got to get rid of it. And those who hate you shall be lifted up from above you or from in front of you. In the English, it says, your foes will flee before you. The word yanusu can mean flee. It could also mean lift up. Our hated ones, our enemies can also be lifted up. We can elevate them. There's certain parts of our life there's certain element. There's certain negative things in our life that we need to that, that we need to reject. There's certain negative things in our life that we need to elevate. Um, sin needs to be rejected, but things that are more neutral use it for the right pur purpose. Elevate it. We recite this when we open the ark and take up the Torah. On a day on a tri-weekly basis because that's our reminder we're taking out the Torah and we got to remember what our goal is what our mission is yes there's parts of our life that may seem like a desert may seem desolate may seem even dangerous and we recite these verses when we take out the Torah to remind ourselves of what our purpose is to reject negativity and to elevate the world to elevate our surroundings to elevate ourselves. It's no coincidence that Ezra established reading the Torah on a tri-weekly basis as an obligation, not just as something the community does, but as an obligation, specifically during exile. So here, here's the story, related story, and I'll conclude with this story. Bibal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement, Founder of this uh, perspective in Judaism that really does focus on the purpose, the soul of existence, the soul of Judaism, the soul of Torah. And the Baal Shem Tov approaches a certain individual in his community, a follower. This was a scholarly gentleman. And he says, I got a mission for you. Are you ready? He says, yes. What does it entail? The Baal Shem Tov tells him exactly where he needs to go and for how long. What am I going to do there? You'll figure out what your calling is when you're there. Go. The man goes off. And he's excited because the Baal Shem Tov came to bring light, love, purpose, meaning, soul into the world. 
And he gets to be a part of this. And he's thinking probably some crazy story is going to happen. He's going to have to like write home about like, I don't know. I bumped into this guy and ended up saving this Jew's life. And this guy got in some, you know, he's, he's waiting for some sort of story to unfold in front of his eyes because he's sent on this beautiful mission. And you know what happened? Nothing. He gets to this town and it's a desolate, quiet town, a ghost town. There's not much going on. He tries to introduce himself to people. He tries to, 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 he doesn't know what, he almost felt like I'm wasting my time. What am I doing here? He comes home. The Baal Shem Tov says, how was your mission? To be honest, it was quite uneventful. Uneventful. What did you do? Who did you meet? Nothing really happened. The Baal Shem Tov sits him down and says, I'd like for you to please describe what your journey was like in great detail. There's nothing. No, no, no. The details. Where did you go? Where did you stop? Who did you meet? What did you do? Where did you sleep? Where did you? I want the details. He lays out all the details to the Baal Shem Tov, even the most uh, seemingly unimportant details. I slept over here. I traveled over here. I spoke to this person. I went to this stream and I made a blessing. I drank water. Stop. You drink water from that stream? Yeah. You made a blessing? Yeah. From the moment, from the beginning of creation, no Jew ever drank from that stream and made a blessing prior to drinking from it. God is the creator of everything and praising God for that stream. Nobody have ever, ever done it. That stream from the moment of creation for thousands of years has been waiting for a Jew to come and elevate that stream. And for the first time in history, you had the honor of doing that. There's no small mission. Wherever we go, wherever we find ourselves, we're on a mission. We have a purpose. We're needed. We're needed by God. We're needed by God to bring goodness and kindness and love and purpose and meaning and soul and to elevate the world. And we recite these verses prior to taking the Torah out of the ark because it's the Torah coming out of the ark is our calling of responsibility as Jewish people to be a light onto the world, a light onto the nations. That's my story and I'm sticking to it.